And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we explore the borderlands of digital technology, culture, media, memes, and how it all influences our lives. Today, we're thrilled to welcome resident fellow at Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab and host of the Shitpost Podcast, Jared Holt. The challenge here is like, how do you push back against this wave of people that do have a moral vision as perverse as it may be, are organized, do talk to each other back and forth all the time, do know how to like set aside minor differences towards larger goals, and want to advance cruelty with that, that network effect. Jared will be discussing his new report for the Digital Forensics Lab about how domestic extremists adapted and evolved after the January 6th insurrection how we can avoid being bystanders in the face of fascism, and the real-world effects of posting and media martyrdom. Before we begin, make sure to follow Digital Void on your favorite social media platform today to keep up to date with our latest podcasts, projects, and event announcements. We have a handful of exciting announcements to make in the coming weeks, including news about our first events outside of New York City. Thank you, Jared, so much for being here. Uh, we really appreciate you being on our show. It's uh, you've been somebody we've been wanting to talk to for some time because this is, you know, we're 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 in it. You know, we're we're in this this period of time where it's kind of like an existential threat that looms around us. At the same time, we're in the middle of a pandemic. At the same time, we're in social media upheavals and re- re- reveals. And I can't think of somebody who's really much more of an expert than you. So thank you for being here to talk about some of your work. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, uh, first, I just want to start this off by just like kind of throwing this thought out there. It feels to me like since it's been a year since January 6th, and it still feels to us like we're still in that it's going to get worse before it gets better phase. In your work, are you sensing that? Uh, For now, yes, in a way, but I also don't want to like minimize people who like do give a damn and are trying. Um, You know, even in conversations I've had with people at major platforms, like there are people that want to do good work uh, in the digital space. There are, you know, people in government who want to make a difference on this stuff. But generally speaking, I think that there's kind of been a a lack of like clear moral vision and community and engagement at, at the tippity top federal level. And I think that can be why it almost feels kind of hopeless. It's like it, it seems like the people that, you know, we put into office thinking that, you know, they would put their foot down and defend this like basic idea even like republicans on that side of the aisle you would think could come to the agreement that like oh the people charging in this building who were roaming around looking for us wanting to kill us that was a bad thing like not reaching agreement on stuff like that i think can definitely contribute to feeling like things are going to get worse um and i i think like kind of the best thing you can do is just hope that somebody will like step up and fill that void and define what the vision forward is. But right now, it's not clear to me what it is. To follow with the worry, 
that things will get worse. You're also worried that Americans may be suffering from the bystander effect. Can you explain what the bystander effect is and why you're presently worried about it? Hey, someone reads the Substack. What's up? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, the uh, the bystander effect, that's a term that is often used in like the medical field and psychological field to describe the phenomenon of, like the first time I encountered it was, you know, if you are walking down the sidewalk and someone in front of you collapses. I, I think most people would just kind of spring into action, go try to help them up, see if they're okay. But if you were in like a large auditorium and somebody collapsed on the stage or, or fell down some stairs or something, there would be a pause there. Um, and when we are in the presence of large groups, we feel less personal responsibility to act um, and, and that leads to some hesitation. And in the medical field, this is brought up because when it comes to like CPR and administering uh, that kind of aid, those seconds or those minutes can be, you know, the difference in an outcome on, you know, how much people are able to recover if they do recover. When you're talking about the seconds that are like the, the moments of hesitation, like it, when breathing, yeah, of course, it's going to be like really bad. But when we're talking about democracy, like... It seems like, and I feel this sometimes too, like I just feel this, like especially now with this overwhelming heaviness of everything that's going on, is like you kind of feel kind of discouraged. Like you almost want to say like, well, aren't, isn't somebody supposed to do something about this? Isn't somebody supposed to do something? And you're watching constantly like the Hamilton cast sing instead of like making legislative acts uh, to help us become better at voting, to help us be part of the democratic uh, institution. And that kind of is discouraging to an audience. So how do you, what, what would you recommend that people, how do we engage? I, I know there's like the, uh, you mentioned in your, in your newsletter, like do something like how, how do we engage people like that? Well, I think it goes to, you know, kind of what I mentioned initially, which is, you know, there are communities and people out there that are pushing forward and trying to do something, trying to unify people under you know, a clear moral vision that's inclusive and, uh, you know, supportive of the basic ideal of democracy, which is that everybody gets a vote and everybody gets a say in how their life goes, you know, on <laughs> at least some abstract scale. And, you know, I, I think in this situation where federal leadership, the Nancy Pelosi's of the world are like introducing the cast of Hamilton instead of like, and, and you know, giving a, a nice, strongly worded letter to the problem yeah. instead of you know really fighting tooth and nail um you know you know they say democracy <laughs> is in danger and everything but it just doesn't feel like they they're acting like it uh on on these top leadership levels and i think you know the the fix there is to kind of be the change if that makes sense you know there is more of us than there are of them uh you know if enough people were organized and you know, had a clear vision, you can like force change in, in this country. It's a, it's a numbers game. If 2 million people got insanely mad at Facebook and like actually organized and tried to do something about it, I bet Facebook would listen. You know, if people in a state said, oh, our representative is, is not, you know, doing what needs to be done. Let's run a primary campaign against them. You know, like th that would get their attention. You know, it's, there are things you can do on these smaller levels to affect larger change. And I, 
like I, I forgive people for feeling discouraged and like the American dream is broken and like, what's the point? Maybe just kick your feet up and make sure your saving savings account is okay. And like, see if you can ride this one out. But, um, you know, really it's, it's not so much like a degradation of the system or like a corrosion of the system. It's, there's like people that are seeking that moment and seeking that social disorder and trying to exploit it to, you know, turn society into something cruel. It's not just that it's like getting suckier. It's that the challenge here is like, how do you push back against this wave of people that do have a moral vision as perverse as it may be, are organized, do talk to each other back and forth all the time do know how to like set aside minor differences towards larger goals and want to advance cruelty with that, that network effect. Right. Yeah. I want to talk to you about your report. This, this is an incredible report that came out uh, at the Atlantic, your, your, your place of work, the Atlantic council. And the report is titled after the insurrection, how domestic extremists adapted and evolved after the January 6th U S Capitol attack. And I think the part that really, affected me most like right off the bat was the aftermath which was kind of like i think you were talking to um nick let's go and he mentioned something that i can't get out of my head he said there was this moment of clarity like right after the insurrection was like the only time where it was like well now no one can not know everybody knows who did this like everybody's like it's so clear it was such a clarifying like event like it was like almost like a i always call it like a punctuation mark like it was just like there it is but then just like almost 48 hours later, everything like kind of went weird. Everything was just kind of like like that that 4chan post about like everybody being like, oh, it was Antifa or they were just like spreading misinformation. But you have in, in your report, and you, you've been tracking this for long before January 6th, obviously. But you, you have in your report that in the immediate aftermath was like this period of paranoia. And then all of a sudden, this period of rebranding. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, the people who stormed the Capitol, like, walked away from the Capitol being like, hell yeah, brother, this is the first shot in the new revolution, uh, brought to you by my Patriot points. Uh, <laughs> no, but it's, you know, they, they were pumped about it, right? And, you know, they went home, they logged on to all their little chat rooms and platforms, and were like, all right, all right, guys, what's next? What are we doing? We're going back, right? We're, we're going to go after Facebook now. We're going to go after the state capitals now. And um, then people started getting arrested. A lot of people started getting arrested. Like, just by the end of January, uh, it was like 200 people had been arrested. FBI, you know, every national agency, DHS, was coming out and being like, no, this is the threat. What, what you saw there, that was the threat. And like now the national security apparatus has a reason to like really do something about it. Inauguration did not go as they thought it would. Q did not show up and mm -hmm. reveal the master plan uh, to make JFK Jr. president. <laughs> right. And <laughs> he didn't come back from the dead to anoint the new president, you know? Yeah. So it was this thing, you know, they thought it was like so epic. Um, and then the tide shifted against them. Like initially, even some of the Republicans today, like Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham, who are peddling this uh, January 6th revisionism, were speaking in pretty certain terms, saying like this was bad. Uh, Trump is responsible. And again, it was bad. Uh, they've wavered on that since. But it, it was this like backlash. Yeah. And... That fueled paranoia, particularly the FBI and DHS saying that they were going to invest resources in it. 
And that paranoia like really kind of freaked these guys out. You know, you had the Proud Boys telling people like, listen, don't go to rallies right now. Just like go outside and touch grass and like chill out and like <laughs> don't think about this for a little bit. We're going to see how this shakes out. Because um, initially there was a concern that like any further actions were going to like further jeopardize them legally. Uh, so, you know, they're telling people to chill out. Even the one of the examples I use in the report, the Derek Chauvin trial, you know, that would be something that normally these groups would be like, hell yeah, brother, let's let's roll pack up the truck and go. Um, but they stayed away from that um, because, it, you know, the situation was too hot. Um, so after the dust settled a bit, deplatforming happened, arrests were happening, still happening to this day. Uh, you know, you have these statements, these condemnations, more like newsrooms suddenly start aiming people at these beats full time to more degrees than they did. Once that landscape gets established, then started the adaptation and evolution process. So adapting to new platforms, new ways of communicating on those platforms, uh, adapting strategy overall, like what kind of real-life political action do they want to do. Um, and that sort of set the course for where we are today. Uh, you have this movement that is very much getting its cues from national conversation and national culture war causes, um, you know, and that's being brought further and further into the central spotlight of conversation by people like Tucker Carlson, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, et cetera. But then the organizing part of it is happening more at these local grassroots levels um, and manifesting itself often against these lower level government entities like school boards, even single officials on school boards, um, city councils, health boards, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, kind of rightfully with this like rightful bet that there's less resources that will push back or provide friction against them and that there's a lower chance of blowback for the cause overall. Right. Yeah. This is where I I'm getting, this has become a piece of writing that since June, I think Ben Collins put it together about QAnon's new plan run for school board. And just recently, I think it was last week in, in the Washington post was a, a story about a, a woman who's an actual threeper, which is an extremist organization. And she won a board of ed seat. Like she's actually on the board of ed and it, when she, and she was the second person in that on that right. board that had that affiliation. Yeah. Like, yeah. The second person, the second person on the board of ed, that's part of an extremist group recognized by the, like recognized that way. And she has like a, a the profile had like showed her neck that had the, the three per tattoo on it. And they, they asked well, the shocking thing, if that's not shocking enough, is that she doesn't have children in the district. Like that was, to me, the, she she homeschools, but then then I read even further the thing that like worries me, which is an article about how there's intimidation, like the intimidation tactic, and it just feels like it's it's become this retooling, not just revisionism, but like this retooling of civic action that has now entered a space that's no longer like I think you mentioned on something else, which is that they're using the tools of democracy. They're being elected sometimes uncontested, but they're just they're being elected officially, you know, as part of democracy, but they're in the back of their mind is that the system has to be rewritten in their view, you know, like in that local action thing you bring up, which is like, 
the general Flynn local action equals national impact is not about democracy. You know, that's about rewriting the world and their vision. Like how, how does that square with the future of democracy? Like, can they, do they, do they work together? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's been like a huge challenge, especially for like media and that sort of thing, trying to wrap their head around how to like talk about this, which is that going and running for your local school board, running for city council, perfectly legal um it is your right as a you know american citizen to pursue these offices um but you know when you listen to people like flynn or like steve bannon uh talk about the strategy here they're not running for these offices to be like i'm running for election board because i really love the administrative work of an election they're like i'm running for this board because I'm mad that it certified votes for Joe Biden and I want to get in there and refuse to certify Joe, you know, certify votes. So they're going into these positions with like the express intention of like getting that power and then just, you know, turning into these giant like pails of expired yogurt in the (laughs) system and like just junking up the whole thing and like making it impossible to, to get movement. And, that's concerning because, you know, there's a lot of focus on these voting rights bills uh, up on the national level, but they could be the best bills in the world. They could pass tomorrow. But if the people, you know, who are trusted with administering the election system in the U.S. are, you know, working to, you know, corrode it or sabotage it, those laws don't really matter because if the votes can't even like get out of the precincts, then who who fucking cares sorry am i allowed to cuss on here like oh yeah yeah, okay this is yeah we're i mean our podcast is it it covers digital culture so i mean there's no real i mean it's as far as the boundary of of however that works which is unfortunately pretty pretty far for those boundaries yeah Um, yeah i'll just uh i'll start reading the navy seal copy pasta now oh yeah just we were yeah like you could what the fuck did you say to me So the, then it brings me to like this, this, I guess the, the, the overall question I have, which is like, how is the intimidation part covered by democracy? Like that's an existential threat to the society, like the actual uh, small time communities there. It's an intimidation tactic. So how is what, this is where, again, like the bystander effect really gets in my head because it's like, what do you do if you feel this, this threat? That's not physical. It's not like there's no Gestapo rocking down the street yet. But they're really like you, like you said, they're gunking up the system. Like, how do you get past like that that the slow violence? I guess that's the best way I could describe it. Well, you have to, um, you know, since this is being done in the like quote unquote legit way. I mean, I, the immediate thing comes to mind is just that you have to find better people and like make sure they win because like a point I made in the Substack and that I keep making is that. Even though polling is like really bad right now on these topics and like way more people are bought into these ideas than I think we should, can feel comfortable with. Um, if you zoom out, like there are still way more of us than there are of them, but they are better organized. They are more motivated and they're doing the damn thing. Um, so I, you know, just by sheer numbers alone, I think if we do the damn thing, and can set aside differences, you know, it's like, I know it feels gross, but like if, if you're in a red district, 
uh, and and you're a Democrat, uh, you know, when it comes time to vote, maybe, you know, instead of skipping over the box for election commissioner, you could do like a little bit of research and figure out like, okay, does one of these people like at least have a commitment to the idea of like, I'm going to try to do this job fairly and like, you know, just doing like little stuff like that or organizing or having these like demonstrations and stuff. It's just, you just have to do something. Um, Cause like no one person can fix this, but if we can find it in ourselves to have that same kind of motivation that the anti-democratic right wing has right now, like I, I don't see how we could lose. It's just a matter of like, the question is like, do we think it's possible to get people, you know, out of their chairs and, and acting in the same way. And and so much of the motivation for the civic action that the right is taking is fueled by social media platforms and the inflammatory polarizing content that spreads, uh, particularly with right-wing influencers like DC Drano, millennial Republicans, typical liberal. There are polls with hundreds of thousands of likes, and they spew everything from conspiracy theories about how Donald Trump can end up as president in 2023 by displacing Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House and then impeaching Joe Biden and Kamala Harris at the same time for no apparent reason to, (laughs) to running for your local school board. So what is social media's role and why is it that it seems like the left can't get behind a certain type of Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez populism that tends to perform better in this type of environment. Um, to the question of why Democratic leadership doesn't get with the program, I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> fair. That's fair enough. I, I would guess um, uh, without going too tinfoil hat, well, I don't even think it's tinfoil hat. I, I think it's just the financial interests of the Democratic Party do not align with those movements. Um, I, I think it's probably just as simple as that. Um, and as far as social media's component in this, I think a lot of this can be attributed just to the revenue model of the internet, which is monetized attention. Um, and I forget, I I stole this idea from somebody, but I'm forgetting who, and I feel like a disgusting plagiarist. But basically, like the model that is rewarding attention necessarily incentivizes inflammatory outrageous content um, because just psychologically that holds attention um so by design you know despite whatever policies are on the books uh what however many posts facebook wants to say they took down any given quarter like the problem is the system uh it, it is what is rewarded um, and I think until those incentives change and the reward system of the internet changes, uh, it, it's just going to continue to be like that. Um, good liberals, good, good, nice liberal folks, uh, you know, don't like to think of themselves as sinking into that inflammatory pit. Um, and I, I kind of feel the same way, even though I it feels like it maybe contradicts the other part of what I'm saying. Uh, like maybe it would be more effective, but I I don't want to go there if it, if you don't have to. Um, it, like it, it doesn't make it better. It would just enable like a different version of the same thing. Um, but but yeah, I, I mean I think the role is uh 
is kind of crucial. You know, a lot of these anti-democratic right-wing people are getting their content from social media. They're not reading newspapers. They're not uh, even like really listening to talk radio anymore. It's like podcasts, Facebook groups, pages. Um, and, and the social media is also a huge way in like how they've built these giant networks. So we have Alpha Brain to thank. Alpha, yeah. Bringing us to our sponsor, <gasps> Alpha Brain. Yeah. <laughs> Take as many pills as you want to make that work. The um, a few years ago, Taylor Renzer wrote about an article. She wrote an article for the Atlantic called um, "Hate Finds a New Home" on Instagram. And these influencers have really, over the last several years, have like, are, I would consider them like thought leaders, like alpha brain thought leaders. You know, like these are, they are. I don't know. I think the question I want to ask is do, when they ask a question like who's a better VP, Christy Nome or Candace Owens? And Candace Owens gets like 90% response of like, hell yeah, Candace Owens. Let's own the libs with that. Does this, does it translate to civic action, do you think? Or is it just simply trolling like the environment? I think it's a mix. I don't think it, I don't think those polls, for example, trigger civic action. Um, but I do think they build sentiment, uh, which is then, can then be picked up and, and, placed into a call to action so i think it's mostly sentiment building um and under new election laws if candace owens wins that poll she becomes president so i, th I think you know you really have to watch the states <laughs> yeah. and these new yeah. voting laws going through there's some sneaky sneaky stuff in there but uh yeah what's the pill she's with all turn blue right um she's pushing that uh quack cure that like it's like keeps oh yeah colloidal silver I, I knew a guy in college who was really into yeah, that's that it, yeah and did no, he, he didn't blue? turn blue, but um, he got some on his hand, and like his hand turned a little bit blue. And I was like, "Why are you putting that inside you, dude?" Oh. But <laughs> it's like, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's going to be the Joe Biden asked for five hundred million tests. Vice President Candace Owens asked for five hundred gallons of colloidal silver. I mean, it's it, it just seems like I don't, I hope that it doesn't translate, but it does seem to me like. The reason why I ask this is because these are private pages and the majority of their audience are their, are themselves. You know, it's like they're talking like this is why a social media, a right wing social media platform doesn't work is because they don't have somebody to troll. That's why I'm always wondering, like, I guess it acts more like as an anger bot system or an anger driver or just ways of like in terms of civic action. Maybe it's a rally device, but it is sometimes it's nerve wracking because while I ignore it most of the time, I'm looking at it and being like, why would even why would they even ask that? What what would be the point of talking to somebody about this? They're not trolling anybody. They're just playing. I have no idea. Yeah, there's there's sort of like this circular thing that goes on. Like I I had to walk myself off of responding to an Eric Erickson tweet this morning. <laughs> that was like, "Wow, um you got to show ID and vaccine to get into the grocery store, which one is not a thing anywhere." He's like, "But you don't have to show an ID to vote. And I'm like, wait, do you hate the ID thing or not? Like, do you, like, it, uh, I, I, what is the point here? If I don't have to show an ID for getting groceries, I also shouldn't have to show one for voting or like, it is too hard to go to the grocery store, which is why I want it to be that hard to vote, which is like, it, it didn't make any, but the point being is like, there's also a part of this, process and in this message that happens on this uh you know type of movement which is one they define you know anybody outside of their own worldview 
even fellow Republicans that don't get with the program enough as evil. Part of the cabal, part of the the grand plot to destroy the world that Trump is going to save us from. And then, like, within that, they can produce this outrage content that gets a ton of views and a ton of attention by the nature of it uh, that kind of reinforces this message of, like, wow, look, I said something and they got so mad and so upset. We are making the evil people crawl, you know, like we are really making them shake in their seats. And doesn't that feel good? Uh, Molly Jong Fast wrote a, a newsletter for The Atlantic this week that was just kind of made this point where it's like it's just owning the libs for the sake of owning the libs. And it reinforces this narrative uh device of us versus them yeah, i think the, the 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 further question i want to ask you is and i think you could you have a pretty good point of view on it is the, the fear that josh and i've been watching for the last year about media martyrdom like using media specifically to leverage the same martyrdom that tr- they, they feel like trump went through so like uh, the big moment i think it's even a tweet that I remember from you, which is like, no matter how you feel about Kyle Rittenhouse's legal outcome, venerating him on a stage with his own theme song is like pretty horrifying. Like it's that type of media martyrdom is like a success model. You know, you get to actually see somebody who has played with the way that the court operates and the law operates and now is like play like gets to play a new role. Like he kind of gets character rebirth and it kind of goes along with that revisionism that's in your report. But like media, media's participation in this is not great. You know, it's a uh, I, I they the media exists because of the First Amendment. If this country takes a, a turn, like those those freedoms kind of go away. So it's like that's it's kind of weird that they're playing with this whole like allowing anti democratic voices to appear on television, uh, seeing it as both sides, and allowing these subculture characters like Rittenhouse or whomever like. To be treated as like, like the whatever vision that the far right wants to make them, they're like, yeah, okay, that's that's cool. That's what you guys want to call him. We'll just call him that too. Yeah, it's it's treated like a side, right? Yeah, but it's Mehdi Hassan put it really well in this interview with Columbia Journalism Review, where he's like, you know, and and Mehdi is somebody who is like very open about his worldview, but will put his foot down and defend it against anything. Um, which is like, at least in my mind, way more respectable than this like view from nowhere. I'm going to pretend like I don't have any attitudes about anything. Uh, just to be like, no, this is how I feel and these are my values. And you know what? We can talk about those. And But like, of course, that's going to shape how I interpret things. And if you like it, that's cool. If not, we can talk about it. I like that way more. But the like view from nowhere type of stuff, I think, is like part of the problem, at least when mainstream news is, you know, involved in these kind of topics, because I, I think it, you know, sometimes it can result in the urgency of this stuff being downplayed. You know, the fact that like the the veneration of Kyle Rittenhouse and being turned into a star with, you know, the song that's like Kyle Rittenhouse, bum, 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 bum. This is so yeah. fucked up, man. I just like, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was disgusted in a way that I hadn't really felt in quite some time. So Jamie was recently on um, Douglas Rushkoff's Team Human podcast, and Jamie and Douglas were talking about uh, the pro wrestling kayfabe of the right at the moment. Do you think there's a moment after 
the curtains go down or the cameras cut where they act like pro wrestlers backstage and they use the rhetoric of, wow, we really popped them out there, huh? And they just continue to go about. Is there that other side or are you seeing the true believer dumb? I think it's a mix. Um, there's definitely people who are just in it for the the grift. Like Turning Point USA claims to be like, oh God, um, fuck it, whatever I'll say. A turning Point uh, USA tries to be this like, we're teaching youngsters how to be good Christian evangelical voters but their summits are like notorious for drug use and like just craven party like party scenes of like college kids just like blasting cocaine and like doing all kinds of stuff and like, which which i will disclaim that this is what i have heard um through people who know things um who i believe know things but yeah sure it's uh yeah there's there's definitely like an element of it that is just kind of for the show of it and i think that especially at the top levels of this stuff is probably a larger majority of it but i also don't think it's useful to you know focus too much on that distinction because the end product is the same you know like if the result like what whether they believe it or not like they are producing true believers um, and, and that is what has the effects ultimately. You bring up something about TPUSA that bothers me all the time because TPUSA has that professor watch list on it, you know? So they have like not only a grift that they continually run and this, when kids used to go away for like that week in like Catholic school and it ended up being just like an, a week of experimenting as a teenager. It had nothing to do with Christianity, <laughs> you know? It's like, that's kind of like TPUSA has this media version of them that they kind of play as a role, but it's not really like, how they exist as, but when I think about TPUSA and their um, goal of converting young people, I I'm wondering what you think. And this is this is a question. So you had sorry to pivot this way. You had a call in show, and of course, right after I listened to the call in show, I was like, "Oh, I want to call in," you know, because <laughs> and I was like, "Well, obviously, I can't now because it's no longer live." And you should do another one of those. I love those things. How should this be treated in school? Like, how do we talk about this? Not just in J schools, but I'm talking about like. I think that every professor needs to be a climate change professor. I also think that every professor needs to be like a kind of a pro-democracy professor. It's like, what do you, what do you think? Well, the strategy here, and this is a strategy that's like been, it's decades old. The religious right used to do this, um, quote unquote, teach the controversy. Um, and they would do that. Like, I, I think the most distinct example that at least people my age might have memories of is creationism. And this is still the place and or still the case in places like Texas where sure the teachers can say the earth is a trillion years old and made from space dust and a supernova and everything, but they should also teach that, you know, it's a some people also think the Bible is true and it's like two thousand years old. And that is sort of like the first stage of that and then you know, eventually you get to uh, points in time where, like now, you have members of state legislators introducing bills to be like, no books that discuss racism should be in school. Um, and, and it kind of flips on its side. It's always, you know, it, the general strategy is teach the controversy and then, okay, now that we're in the mix, shut down the opposition. And I think just being able to recognize that for what it is and and to like act on it i i think is important i think that 
the fact that like TPUSA and stuff is like in high schools and colleges, like grooming people towards this stuff and like telling them to tune into voices like Pizzagate, Jack Posobiec and like whatever, like it's, it's just so toxic and awful. And I don't think that, um, you know, legally you can like ban them from campus. I, and I, I don't even, they, they have a chapter yeah, at the school I teach, they have a chapter and there's a table. Well, pre-COVID, I remember seeing a table set up in, in the student center. And and it was kind of like, again, like what Josh's question about, like, are they performing? Like, I think in some ways the people behind the table were performing a bit, but it didn't stop curious young minds from walking up and being like, hey, I agree with this and like falling down that little rabbit hole. So it's it's a public campus with a public uh, First Amendmently protected thing. If they got permission to put up their table, it's sort of like the same thing of running for an office. You know, it's they they use the system to start these fires. You know, so it, it's just my problem is like these are young folk that may or may not have certain professors that are teaching the controversy. They might not have, I think, in the way I put it, they might not have the right vocabulary or language to deal directly with these systems. And so I, I think sometimes we're lacking good ways of talking about this. Yeah, and I think that's why it's so crucial that we start better Turning Point USA um, and, and set up our tables next to their tables. Oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> that's a good idea. Say, say those guys don't get it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just to, to take out, I mean, this is, I Snapchat put out this interesting little app called Run, like they run for something or run, run for office. And it's a basically an app that tells you all the open um, elections all over the United States. And I thought that was a neat little technique and it uses um, right-leaning, left-leaning and neutral um, recruiters to kind of engage with young people so that they could run for office. I think that's what you bring up is a good point, which is just don't let TPU USA be the only table, you know, like there should be other tables there. Yeah, like when I was doing research last year and watching these like nutcases scream at school boards about like how little Timmy shouldn't have to wear a mask because he's so disgusting, it gets all sweaty and nasty and and, and the washing machine doesn't work on paper mask, you know, like just nonsense or like the proud boys showing up and intimidating officials. Like a lot of the videos I was watching, I mean, maybe there were like one or two like normal people there, but it was like the committee, one or two normal people who were probably there because they just wanted to get like a permit to like paint their house a different color or something like why else would you go to city council? And then like 30 just like freaks. And uh, like all I could think is just like, why are they the only ones there? Like they are the only voice in the room right now. And like I said at the beginning, there's more of us than there are of them. And like that shouldn't fly. Like we shouldn't, and and that's the whole like Substack premise of the the Substack thing I wrote, which is you know don't be a bystander, don't just like sit back and be like wow, that looks bad, um you know like th there are little things you can do, and you know what they're not all gonna work, and some of it's gonna feel stupid, and like I hate to ruin the fun, but like local politics is so boring, so boring, like most of the time so boring, uh. But but it's crucial we engage. Or else Bethany Mandel's mask removal ends up being the thing that triggers <laughs> civic action. It's still one of the most unknown. 
Yeah, or even like, you know, when, when these weirdos start emailing somebody on the health board and like spamming them, at least like in my work, you know, I've certainly been on the receiving end of a lot of nasty stuff. Not exactly like that, but but similar in its own respect. And even just getting like a nice message in the mix there, like has meant something to me. You know, I get like 20, 20 messages being like, you know, hate you, hope you die, hope you, you know, drive off a bridge or something. But just getting one person to be like, hey, sorry, you're dealing with all this shit. I think what you're doing is really great. And a lot of people around me think the same thing. Uh, hang in there. Let me know if you need anything like that. That has been I have appreciated that so much. Like in those moments, it has meant the world. Just even just like a weird little anonymous thing from someone I've never heard of just to know that's out there so that it isn't the only thing there, you know? Yeah, I think we take it for granted because we're, we're, we sit so close to this and so near to the study and we forget that like people like sometimes don't even know this is even happening. And so it, it is kind of like good to get to, to know that other people are reading it that are outside of our like circle of like esoteric readers of the subject. And, and that's that, that I guess it two, two last questions, which is, I guess on that line, um, what happens when extremism goes mainstream? Like it's been, it's been mainstreaming now. So it's like, is it, is it extremism or, and then what that, like, what, so how does that track with like, how we see people encountering the subject matter more often. Yeah. I mean, when it goes mainstream, it really isn't extremism. Um, extremism as a definitional term is, is something outside the realms of like acceptable discourse uh, or, or popular discourse. And to steal a line from Oren Segal at the ADL, abolitionism, when that first came on the scene, uh, by definition would have been an extremist movement. Uh, it was fringe. People weren't down with it initially. Uh, so it's not a perfect term. Um, it's, it's a little vague. Um, you know, my job title or like if you ask me, I'll say I research domestic extremism because I, I want that to be vague. <laughs> but I think when we talk about it, especially as it's mainstreaming, being more specific uh, is useful because, you know, it is not. Tucker is espousing extremist rhetoric. It is Tucker Carlson is espousing white supremacist rhetoric. You know, that is that's what we mean when we say that. So we should just say specifically what the issue is. So and so is engaging in action that is anti-trans. You know, say, just saying things, you know, e even if it's a little abrasive, just getting specific and honest about what we're really talking about here. Um, I, I think is sort of what could be most useful in that situation. Well, excellent. Well, thank you. We, um, as you know, we, we really appreciate your work and like, honestly, it's, it's invaluable. And to, to give you the boost too, is just like, yeah, please don't stop. You know, it's like, this is, I know it probably takes a toll on your mental health and, and you, and you, you probably have to take some time and distance away from a lot of the work, but it's, a. Uh, your clinical and clear-eyed view on this has been extremely helpful to us. So thank you so much for all the work you're doing and continue to do. It's very kind. Thanks. And uh, where can uh, where can people find the your report, your work, your podcast, your newsletter? Uh, AtlanticCouncil.org for the report. It's also my uh, pinned tweet. If 
you go to Jared L. Holt on Twitter. Uh, you can find it there too. Got a podcast and the newsletter that's shtpost.substack.com. Uh, it is a mildly good time. Uh, so, so if you like the kind of things I do, I try to bring on uh, voices and people from the academic world, from the reporting world, research world, tech world, uh, and just try to get you know their views and sort of lift up people that I think are interesting or have something worthwhile to say about the state of uh, how you, all of this, I guess you would say. Thanks again to Jared for taking the time to join Jamie and I on the Digital Void podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast provider and share this episode with a friend. Stay tuned for more information about our upcoming events, projects, and podcasts by subscribing to Digital Void on Substack or your favorite podcast provider today. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll see you soon.